coming up on this episode of Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton. I am back and ready to go, and this is going to be a good show. It is my return podcast to Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton, and you will not believe some of the stuff that has happened to me over the last five months. A lot of you have been wondering where I've been. I will answer that question and more. Plus, my wife will make her debut on Behind the Mic. Miranda will be with us. And I'll be also joined later by my sister, A.J. Holsey, who used to be an RN. And she'll kind of give you a medical background, some symptoms to be watching for over something that just about put me out of this life. Hang on. We'll tell you some of those symptoms and what to be looking for next Welcome to the Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton podcast. Brought to you by Mojo Merchandise. Join radio veteran Rick Hampton and his guests for informative and entertaining discussions as they take you behind the scenes, behind the stories, behind the music, and more. Originating from the Big Daddy Studios, it's time to go behind the mic, and here's your host, Rick Hampton. Welcome in to Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton. It is the return episode, and I've been asked one question this whole time that I have been gone for five months. Do you believe that? Five months. And the question everyone wants to know is... Where have you been? Well, I've got the answers to that coming up in just a few minutes. But first, I want to say hi to somebody who has not been on the podcast yet. And we are about eight episodes into the Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton podcast. And uh, that would be my wife, Miranda. Hey, Miranda. Hello, everybody. You've heard about her because she's the Mo in Mojo merchandise. First, um, I kind of want to talk about the five months I've been gone. And it started January 14th. I'll never forget that day. Kind of take us through the days leading up to my hospitalization. Sure. So it kind of started around New Year's, New Year's Eve time frame. Rick had kind of just been kind of lethargic, kind of laying in bed, not really having an appetite, not really wanting to go out and do anything. Um, For New Year's, we were all going bowling and he wanted to stay home, wasn't feeling good. And I knew something was up. But we thought it was just a virus, just something that was going to run its course. It was about two weeks later, and he still wasn't going to church, wasn't out doing much, wasn't really leaving the house, wasn't leaving the bed. And um, so we just, we knew something was up, and I was kind of, you know, trying to talk him into going to the doctor. Finally, on January 14th, we kind of made a pact that he was he was ready to go. Yeah, you know, and, and, and when we were talking about how that, it, you know, we thought maybe the virus or whatever was going on would run its course, it really never did. I mean, it never can, you know, it never hit a zenith there of getting over the hump of, of being better and feeling better. And I remember, you know, for me, I work for a church here in Sand Springs called Church That Matters. And I'm the production director. And so for me, I'm always hanging out at the box uh, at our facility, uh, working on something. And I didn't want to do that either. And then even on Sundays, I didn't want to do that either. Uh, I just, you know, I felt horrible. I didn't feel great. And so that last Sunday uh, before we went in, I remember I got several texts from our pastor who said, hey, buddy, you know, I've been missing you at church and, you know, this isn't like you. Go to the doctor, even if I have to drag you there. You know, we're going to go to the doctor. I talked to your wife this morning and we're going to drag you to the doctor if we have to. And even my boss, Jonathan, even he was very concerned. He sent me the same type, almost the same type of message that Pastor Rusty did, which was, dude, you've been sick for a long time. I'm getting concerned. And in talking to your wife, I'm really concerned now. And then uh, one of the guys who uh, volunteers on my team Um, and who ultimately would step into my role whenever I was in the hospital, Danny Armstrong, he wound up uh, doing the same thing. I mean, I got a message from him, and I said, hey, I talked to your wife today, and, you know, don't make me drag you to the hospital, because I'm going to. Yeah, Danny told me, I will come to your house after church, and we will drag him out, and we will go to the doctor. So we decided that um, if I wasn't better by Monday, we made a pact that we would go to the hospital and get checked out at least to satisfy everybody else. And at that point, I was already under the impression that, you know, I was just going to get some antibiotics, and then poof, I'd be right back home and on my way to wellness. Well, Monday morning turned out to be a big, huge deal for you. Um, You wound up in 
a car accident. She was rear-ended not once, not twice, but three times. Yeah, I mean, I was on my way to work and just traveling the road that I travel every day, going down 412, and this guy, the traffic was stopped, and I was at a stop, and I saw the guy in the rearview mirror just coming at me really fast, and I knew that he was going to hit me, so somehow I managed to move out of the way to where I didn't hit the car in front of me, and so he slammed into the back of me. Um, and I'm assuming he bounced off and hit me again and then once more. But um, I knew at that point I had to go to the urgent care just to get, get checked out because with the force of the impact, I probably had a little bit of whiplash, which is what they told me. And so they took x-rays, everything checked out fine, just had a, a minor case of whiplash. And so they wanted me to wear a sling for three days. And um, so I came home from, or while, before I left urgent care, I, I just asked the attending, I said, I know that you can't provide medical advice after, you know, working in the medical field. I understand that. But my husband is, is finally agreed to come to the doctor. This is what's going on you know, do we come here first? And he said, absolutely not. He said, we will send him straight to the emergency room. So just bypass us as the middleman and just take him straight to the ER. So I came home with my arm in a sling and told Rick it was time to get up. He was going to the hospital. I didn't care if he was going to fight me for it, but I was going to take him one way or another. I said, I've already been to the doctor today. It's your turn to go now. And, and, and at that point, I woke up uh, that morning, um, and and ultimately, what it, what started it was um, for the longest time, I would have sometimes I would have these little uh, skin breaks on my foot. You know, I just attributed it to my feet sweat, and then they dry out and they would crack. And for years, um, you know, I could just put a little neosporin on it, put a little Band-Aid on it, and the next day it was fine. And this one just wasn't healing. I wasn't too concerned with it at that point yet. And then that Monday morning, but unbeknownst to her, it scared me because I woke up and my foot was like twice the size it should be. It could barely get it into a shoe. And that was even with the shoe untied and stretched out as far as it could go. I knew then, hey, there is something wrong. And, and I knew something was wrong because when I called to tell you I was in an accident, you were just like, okay. I uh, mean, that's terrible, there was, but, you know, uh, are you okay? Yeah, and, right. and you, you know, first thing you would be on your way to come get me and yeah. you would be out the door. And there was none of that. It was just a okay and so then I was you know left trying to figure out what to do and where to go next but when I came home after urgent care and saw your foot and saw the size of your foot and how red it was then I knew that we had to get somewhere quickly well and and two you know she walks in the door and um you know I had cranked the AC down almost as far as it would go so it was like a meat locker in the room but I was chilling you know, I could feel it. And, you know, I knew I had fever. We took off for the for the ER. We got there. We checked in. They took me back to triage. Uh, they were wanting to look at my foot. They were wanting to look at different things. You know, the guy asked me, hey, can I take your shoe and sock off? And I said, if you can get it off, yeah, I guess so. And so he looked at it. I could see the look on his face that it was serious. He sent me back out in the lobby. He said, go back out in the lobby and I'll call you in just a few minutes. For and some the more lobby tests. was packed. Yeah. I mean, we're talking the middle of January. It's the middle of flu season. There were so many people there waiting to get in to be seen by a doctor. You had said something about, you know, I know him. And, you know, we had talked about kind of that you knew the person that had checked me in. And so it wasn't but just a few minutes and they were coming and getting me to take me back to x-ray. The whole time I'm still thinking, yeah, all right, you know, man, she's got some pull around here, you know. I'm getting in and out of here. This is going to be easy breezy, you know, no big deal. When they took me back, they did the x-ray and then they put me into a small exam room. By that time, your mom was there as well, my mother-in-law, and then uh, you were in there. And, uh, you know, I'm still thinking, man, that, that was that moved fast. You know, that escalated quickly. But, you know, in reality, you know, looking back on it now, it did escalate quickly. But it was because they knew by looking at my foot and by, you know, some of the testing already that my temperature, all of things that I was dying. You know, that right before their eyes. And if they didn't hurry up and get something done, I could be in a coma. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't told that I wasn't shared that wasn't shared with me at that time. And then the ER doctor came in and was kind of a little bit non-tolerable with me. She, I mean, she was pretty blunt, but me being the smart aleck that I am, I just kind of, Hey, what's up doc? And she didn't find that funny. 
and she made it clear. Uh, well, I'll tell you what's up. You're going to lose part of your leg today because of the diabetes. You could have, you know, knocked me over with a feather or you could have hit me in the face with a frying pan. I was stunned. I mean, I, I remember just looking at her like, what? And so I did. I'm like, oh, well, time out. What are you talking about diabetes? What do you mean? Uh, that was when, you know, she explained to me that, you know, your blood sugar right now uh, is about 629. That's not good. <laughs> that's pretty high. And especially for my age, that was concerning to them. And that's when I first found that out, that I was going to lose part of my leg. And it, it became kind of my worst fear. You know, something that I thought might happen someday, you know, that would be the thing, go in for something minor, according to what I'm thinking. And then here it is, boom, it's this big, you know, bombshell. So you weren't in the room at the time. We talked about it. When you came back in the room, you could tell that, you know, there was had been a big bombshell dropped while you were out of the room. Yeah, I just stepped out to call a few friends, family, and our pastor just to kind of let them know that we were in the hospital, just to, you know, pray for you, to lift you up in prayer. And um, when I came back into the room, I could tell something was up because the look on your face, you were completely shocked. You looked like you'd seen a ghost. Yep. And you just looked, you looked numb and just trying to figure out what was going on. Because by the time I got back in the room, the ER doctor was in there. There was an admitting hospitalist in there. There was a trauma surgeon that had just walked in. And I'm trying to figure out why are all these people in the room? Because I wasn't there when you first got mm -hmm. the news. I remember when you, um, one of the things that does stick into my memory, you were not in the room. And I remember I turned to my mother-in-law, Debbie, and I just told her, I said, I'm sorry. And she, you know, what are you sorry for? And I told her, I said, I know that you had to deal with this with your husband because he had diabetes. Your dad had diabetes and uh, ultimately lost both of his legs right. uh, from that. So you had to deal with that growing up. You had to help your dad and that kind of thing. But so did she. I didn't want to put her in that position and I didn't want to put you in that position either. And so I apologized to her. And then, you know, when you came in, I apologized to you. And, you know, you were just like, we'll get through this. It'll be fine. We'll just have to work through that. Right. And, you know, it's been it was over 20 years ago when we dealt with this. So, yes, it was a little bit different. But it's one of those things that God puts you through a trouble and you don't know why or what, what the reasoning is behind it. But who would have known 20 plus years later, we were in that situation because we were getting ready to experience it again. Yeah. And we knew what we were doing. We knew what we were up against. So we had that knowledge and we knew kind of where we were going a little bit, even though I was on the opposite side. I was on the spouse side this time instead of being, you know, a child, but um, still kind of being around that. God, God prepared us for it. Yeah. So it was a shock. Uh, the diabetes diagnosis was a shock. I mean, there were signs. I know, you know, there were signs there. Uh, but uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that because uh, later on, I'm going to be joined by a former RN and she just happens to be my sister as well. AJ Halsey will be on the program kind of talking about the medical side of things. One of the things with the diagnosis was so not only did I get the bombshell of the diabetes diagnosis, then I also received at the same time the amputation. And so I lost from uh, just below my knee my foot and ankle, all of that. It's uh, a BK, below the knee, amputation. And it's very important, if you can, to save the knee because it'll help later with prosthetics and walking. Not that you can't do it without the knee, but, you know, you have to get a man-made knee and there's other totally different situations. So for me, it was still a shock. One of the things that I, I know for a fact is that I'm a little cloudy on the hours after I was admitted. The last thing I remember in my memory is I remember going to surgery, but that's it. And after that, I don't remember anything for there's probably three or four days there where I don't really have a whole lot of memory. Um, and it wasn't until just the other night when we were talking about this interview that you were telling me all the people that were in the waiting room waiting, you know, that had come to the hospital. I didn't even know that. Right. So the by the time I stepped out to make those first few phone calls, um, just to let everybody know we were in the hospital right before they took you to surgery. I went back out and called some of those people back again and just kind of here's an update. This is what's happening. 
So all of those people I called had made their way up to St. Francis and got there before you went into surgery. So we were all sitting out in the waiting room, which seemed like an eternity, waiting for the surgery to happen, you know, not knowing really what was happening because it was just kind of a rush thing and they took you back. And um, there was probably a dozen of us just sitting out in the waiting room. It was late. It, you know, it was around 10 o'clock at night. You didn't get back to your room until almost midnight, but all those people, you know, stayed with us and, and prayed with us and just were there as a support system. And yeah, you wouldn't know that because you were, you were kind of out of it at the moment. Yeah. But yeah, so they they took us to a step-down ICU room after your surgery. By the time you got into the room, everybody, you know, checked on you. Then they all headed home for the evening. What we didn't know at the time was when they went to do the amputation, there was so much infection in your leg that they couldn't close your leg up. They didn't want to close that infection in your body. And so um, they had told us that there would be more surgeries to come. Now, at that point, we didn't really know what that looked like. And um, so that was a Monday when that Monday evening when that first surgery happened. Then they took you back to surgery that Friday of the same week. They kind of gave you some antibiotics some pain medicine and just kind of tried to get the infection out of your system so they could go back in and close your leg. So when they took you in that Friday, there was still so much infection that they couldn't close it up. So they came in and said, we'll wait over the weekend. We'll give you some different antibiotics, see if they help, and um, we'll try again on Monday. So Monday rolled around, and they took you back down to surgery. They were, they did, were able to do a little bit more to the leg, but they weren't able to fully close it yet. And so they thought a couple days, we'll wait. Took you back on Wednesday, still a lot of infection, but they were starting to form the leg to create the flap to where they could sew it up so you could move forward with everything once all the infection was out. And then January 25th, which was the following Friday, was the last time that you went to surgery. So you had five surgeries on that leg, just waiting for the infection to get out because it was so bad. The infection had traveled up your leg and they were just trying to make sure that it was all out of your body before they closed it up and it caused any other issues. So yeah, you were on so much pain medicine and had been to surgery and done so many post-op and pre-op things in between those two weeks that you probably were kind of foggy and don't remember much of it. Yeah. And it wasn't a typical thing either. That's the, that's the issue is, you know, by what she described it, it was not a typical surgery. Um, typically what happens most of the time, if you have an amputation like that is they'll go in, they'll do the amputation, they'll take part of the leg or whatever it is. And then immediately you start, you know, they'll close the wound up and you start your rehab process, uh, you know, getting better, letting the leg heal, things like that. And then almost immediately you'd start going through rehab to help, you know, get used to the, the new normal that you have. Well, I didn't have that opportunity because of the infection and it was so bad. And we'll talk a little bit about that with AJ here coming up in just a minute too, because uh, one of the things that she was, uh, you know, that we've talked about in the hospital was the surgeon was so bound and determined to save my knee. You know, he knew that it would be necessary uh, to help with that process. And he really wanted it to because she said, you know, I know having been in the medical field for as long as I have, there are surgeons out there who they might have waited the one surgery, but when they went back in and they saw that the infection was even worse or, you know, had not really gotten a lot better and they couldn't sew it up, they would just continue to go up the leg. To have somebody like that who very adamant about it, because I remember that last surgery, people I knew, people had been lifting me up in prayer. They'd been uh, going to the throne of God on my behalf and, you know, asking for any healing and, and specifically to take that infection away. And I remember when uh, the surgeon came in, Dr. Bergman, he came in and he asked me before he walked out, uh, for surgery. I was getting ready. They were prepping me for surgery again. And um, that final one, uh, he said, look, if I get in there, the infection's not all gone. Would you uh, be okay? We went above the knee and I took the knee and I told him, I was like, no, I would not be okay with that. And he just looked at me and kind of got a little smile on his face. And he said, good. He said, that's what I wanted to hear. Yeah. I was very thankful that he was very patient, even though we went back to surgery five times. I was very thankful that he was willing to 
to wait and and try to get rid of the infection instead of just rushing and just going above the knee and trying to just get it done. And I believe, too, that, you know, I mean, he he seemed like a, a great guy as well. And I knew, you know, I think he was giving God time to work. He knew that was a miracle happening. Uh, just by seeing that. And and so I firmly believe that 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 was the case. Once they got the wound sealed up and healed up, you know, it was on its way to healing and they finally were able to close the wound and close the leg and get the flap ready and that kind of thing. You know, we uh, went to a new area uh, working on that. Um, unfortunately, uh, like a lot of people, I developed some bed sores from being on my back and those weren't healthy either. Those were, I mean, it's like every, you know, the hits just kept on a coming because, you know, now I have diabetes, this diagnosis, I have amputation, and now I've got these two wounds on my backside that at the first look were black. You know, they weren't scabbed over. They weren't anything you could almost see down in it. I mean, I'm not trying to be too graphic, but it was bad. You know, it had, it had really progressed to the point where it was really bad. The one thing that I do think is funny out of all of this is uh, the fact that at least 25 people have seen my rear end now. Yeah, I think uh, you should have started charging for autographs at some point. Right, or, or or admission, you know, to see it because I I joke about it, but it's the truth, you know, the the wound care team came in cuz they were concerned about it, so they wanted to look at it. So of course, I'm exposed there. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later on with AJ too, the whole modesty thing. Being in the hospital that long or whatever, my modesty just went completely out the window because, you know, so many people looked at my backside. I mean, there was a joke that I said occasionally, but it never failed. Every time somebody would come in and say, hey, do you mind um, so-and-so with this team or with this uh, infectious disease team would like to look you know, it's your backside real quick. Do you mind? No, of course not. Sure. Go ahead. Eventually, I just wanted to holler out into the hallway. Anybody else want to come in and take a peek at this? You know, hey, come get your eye on this, you know, whatever. You're going to want to poke your eye out when you're done. But <laughs> and we were joking one day about that, too. You know, hey, it's take your daughter to work day. Can my daughter come in and take a peek? You know, I mean, sure. Why not? Let's just party in here, you know, around my rear end. But that was another thing that we were dealing with because, um, you couldn't scrape across it because it would tear the skin. And so they were concerned that that would be that that would get out of control as well. To recap, it's kind of like diabetes, amputation. Now I've got this issue with the uh, wounds on my rear end. Then it's just turning the page. And here comes another one. Then we find out that uh, the aortic valve in my heart was having some issues. At first, it was kind of a chicken and egg thing. They didn't know what started what. There was some, I uh, believe they called vegetation. Uh, yeah. Wasn't the what it was vegetation. called on the valve itself. And and basically what was happening was I liken it to to like a toilet flapper inside the tank. Uh, when you flush the toilet, the little flap lifts up and allows water to escape. But then as soon as it gets to a certain point, that flap closes and it becomes tight again, and it doesn't allow any more water in or anything fluids in. Well, it's kind of the same way with my valve. What happened was um, with this vegetation that was attached to it, uh, kind of like part of the infection because it had gotten into my blood and caused me to be septic, they were trying to treat that with antibiotics. And so we spent uh, a couple of weeks, I think, at that point trying to treat that. By that time, I had moved on to um, the uh, rehab floor, fourth floor there at the Yale campus of St. Francis. And uh, had got uh, connected with a therapist and we were going to be working on occupational therapy and physical therapy to get me back in the swing of things. You know, now that I'm missing part of my limb, they needed to work with me to, you know, to, for the new normal. I remember I really felt like I couldn't get a good breath, a deep breath. Uh, you know, it was very hard to breathe. And then if I laid on my side, my especially my right side, if I laid on my right side, which I primarily do, my breath wouldn't come and I, it was labored. And I got to the point where, you know, it was ragged. I, I would be talking and I couldn't catch my breath and I would have to suck in really hard and, you know, inhale really deep. I just couldn't do it. I talked to you and I said, hey, you know, man, I don't feel right. There's something going on. I don't know what it is. So they did some tests and discovered that the vegetation 
that it had gotten worse, uh, that it had not helped, that the uh, antibiotics really hadn't helped a whole whole lot, and uh, the valve now was allowing more fluid to come leak, and it was getting into my lungs. And in effect, I was drowning, slowly drowning. And so the team came in, and they said, you know, this hasn't had the result we hope we were hoping for. Um, the antibiotics actually are working on your kidneys and causing you to have kidney failure. It's very possible that you will. And um, your stats are horrible when it comes to your kidneys. Uh, they're not working very well. We're going to postpone the, the antibiotics because we don't think it's worth the kidney issues for this, you know, this issue. So that's when we found out that they intended upon the cardiologist came in, the surgeon, the, the vascular surgeon came in, explained to us uh, about the, the issues that were at hand. And they said that, you know, I needed a new heart valve. So they were planning on putting in an artificial heart valve. They originally were going to do like a pig valve or, or a uh, cow, but because of your age, your lifestyle that, you know, that we want you to have as a 46, 47 year old man, um, we just want to make sure that your valve will outlive you. Uh, we had had a, a night of praise and worship uh, at the chapel there at the Children's Hospital. Friends and family came and prayed over me. And, and when I left there, I was in great spirits. I hadn't been out of my room in forever, but I was really tired. Talk to me a little bit about that for you. The next day, we were having to give them an answer. Were we going to go through with the surgery? How was that going to go? Even though... The praise and worship was great, and um, I appreciated everybody praying for me. I was depressed, and I was down, and I had pretty much decided, and I told you that, that I'm not doing this surgery. I'm just not. I'm not going to do it. You know, nobody can change my mind. Kind of tell me what was running through your mind at that point, you know, when we were kind of talking about that and, and getting to that point. So I had contacted Candace, our worship leader, and um, some other people, and I said, hey, look, I know it's short short notice, but I really would like to organize a night of praise and worship at the hospital, and I'll find a spot for us to do it, whether it's in the chapel, whether it's in a conference room somewhere. Um, I just think that, you know, Rick's spirits are really down in the dumps because he's had, he's had all these bad news just come at him every which way, and, you know, he's preparing for heart surgery the following day, and um, I just, I just would think it would help lift his spirits if everybody came and we just had a time of of prayer and and worship and just trying to figure out a way that I could help encourage him and um that that night just seeing him there seeing him struggle to breathe seeing the hard time he was having he was trying to be there he was trying to be in good spirits because everybody was there for him but I knew that his endurance wasn't holding up. There was something that was really wrong. And they were saying, you're going to have to have the surgery if you're going to want to make it. And at that point, I really didn't know what his thoughts were. I didn't know how he felt about it. I know it, he was scared and we all were. We were just trying to figure out um, the next step. What what was going to happen if, if we didn't do the surgery? How long of a chance did he have to live or... If we do the surgery, you know, is everything going to be successful? Because open heart surgery is a scary thing. Yeah, I know they do it every day, but when it's when it's you and it's personal, it's it's a different story. Yeah, and and that's ultimately you're right. I I was so scared. Um, I had you know I'd been told by several people how the recovery was slow and it was one of the most painful things that you might go through. In essence, not only do they cut you open, but they cut through your breastbone, your sternum, and so all of that has to be knitted back together. It's not a walk in the park. It it is it is hard and it's painful. I kind of left it as I'm not doing this. I'll just take my chances. Uh, if that's the case, I, I'm gonna. I'm not going to uh, do the surgery. I don't want to do this. This is something that I was scared of in the first place. You were going home that night to get some things done at the house and to check in on our daughter. You were leaving, and but you were going to be back like early morning the next morning. When you walked out, you left with me pretty much being that def defiant that I'm not doing this. It, it, I'm just not. I won't. I'm not going to do it. And I did not sleep a wink 
the whole night. The only thing I can liken it to, and and some people will go, who? But I, I liken it to a Carmen song because it was like a battle between me and God. I even scared my nurse at like 3.30 in the morning. She came in and I was wide awake and had the light on. And I'm just like, uh, you're going to have to come back. God and I are having a, a conversation and it's not going well. You know, God just kept telling me, uh, over and over, cling to Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I knew that there was some stuff going on, and I, I tried my best to to reconcile it in my own head that it'll be all right. You know, they do this every day; it's fine. But I just couldn't, and I knew that it was going to be it was going to be painful. I knew that it was going to hurt, and I remember I opened up my phone. By this point, it's about four o'clock in the morning, and I finally listened to God's voice, and I opened up my phone to my Bible app, and I read the words to Jeremiah 29, 11, and it's the verses, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and to not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's kind of what I started thinking about, was the future. We had just, in December, finalized adoption with our uh, daughter. Um, that process, uh, we'll kind of talk about that as well in a future episode about adoption. To make a long story short, I just started thinking about that, though. We we just became an official family. You know, Hampton 3 is the way we kept saying it. And we had just done that right before Christmas. And then this happened. I didn't want her to be without a father. And so changed my mind. Once I read that verse, I realized, you know what, I'm going to do the surgery. Grabbed my headphones from about 430 or so till they came in at six o'clock to check my vitals and to get the day started. I was listening to Chainbreaker by Zach Williams over and over and over. And then you got in there that morning. I remember you were kind of like, okay, before you even start, I've been thinking about this and you've got to have the surgery. You know what? I can't have you leave yet. God's not through with you yet. And you're right. I'm, you know, totally different person. You know, we were ready to move forward. So we did. The surgery did go well. To look back on it now, the thing I think is amazing. He kept telling me over and over, I have plans to prosper you, not harm you. I'm, I, I've got you, you know, I've got this. Let me have this. I've brought you this far. I've brought you through every bit of it. Let me have control over it. I, I got it. From your perspective, when you came back in that next morning, what was your thought? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't for sure what happened while I was gone because just the night before we were talking about living wills and fi filling out all sorts of paperwork and stuff that you're not really prepared to sit down and talk about, but things that are necessary when you're in a situation like that. When I came back the next morning, you were completely different. It was like a light bulb had kicked on or something and you had made up your mind and you were ready to move forward. And we did move forward. The doctor's hands were guided by God. They did a great job, replaced the aortic valve. But I remember once we were back in a room, your Aunt Barbara came to see us. One of the things that for some reason I developed a taste for lemonade, especially Chick-fil-A lemonade. So <laughs> they brought some gift cards and things to get us more lemonade. And then in a little gift bag was a desk piece of artwork shaped like a cross. And then I started reading it. What it says is on the journey, God will save and protect you, lead and direct your steps, give wisdom, fill you with hope, strengthen with power, bless you with good things, be faithful to the end. And then I looked down at the bottom of the cross and the scripture reference at the bottom said Jeremiah 29, 11. Man, still gives me chills. Well, you know what? We're coming up on a break, but before we head to a break, I want to tell you about the BTM hotline. That is the Behind the Mic hotline. The number is 918-236-9063, 918-236-9063. If you'd like to be a part of the program, maybe you have a question you would like answered, uh, I invite you to call right now, 918-236-9063. Let's go to the phone. Hi, Behind the Mic. Hi, Rick. This is Aaron from San Hi, Erin. What can I do for you? I was just calling in to see, um, I know you guys have a teenage daughter. Um, how did she handle it while you were in the hospital? And how did you guys manage to get her back and forth to school and all of her activities? Just curious. Well, that is a good question. You know, like I mentioned earlier, Cheyenne has been a trooper. She was a trooper through the whole thing. She was amazing. She was kind of a vagabond. I mean, she, she lived out of a suitcase. There were several of our friends and family both who allowed her to stay with them. Even one of the women I work with uh, was very good about taking her, you know, she pick her up from school, 
but then several times she let her stay the night at her house. And so, you know, we can't thank uh, Amanda. There are several people, uh, my sister Valerie, our friend Sheila, who allowed her to stay there and to be a part of their family for that time period. Um, but yeah, she was a trooper. And, you know, we relied on the kindness of friends and family uh, to help get her around uh, to different activities and to make sure that things that she needed to be at, if you couldn't be there, you know, she was able to get there and to be able to be a part of those things and didn't get to miss out on that. Honestly, one of the last times I talked to her on the phone, main reason why I wanted to get out of the hospital was because I was tired of the phone calls ending and crying. And either her or me uh, would be upset and crying because we couldn't hang out. And I wanted to get home to my new daughter and to my family. Thanks for the question, Aaron. I appreciate that. That was, uh, that was a good question. Again, if you have a question for a future show, uh, you want to be a part of the uh, broadcast, uh, it's real simple to do. 918-236-9063. Jot that number down and call and leave your name, the city or town you're calling from, and your question for myself or for a guest. Well, coming up after the break, we'll talk a little bit more with Miranda about what she's learned through this whole process, and we'll welcome my sister AJ to Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton. Don't take those earbuds out now. Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton returns in seconds. I'm Mo. And I'm Sheila Joe, And we're Mojo Merchandise. Mojo Merchandise was created by two friends with a craft passion. We love to make things as gifts, like baby shower presents, wedding shower presents, party decorations, and balloon bouquets. There is nothing we can't do once we put our mind to it. We specialize in vinyl printed t-shirts, home decor signs, pillowcases, cups, and much more. If you have a favorite scripture or a mom saying you want on a t-shirt or sign, we've got you covered. If you have an idea or needing a gift, let Mojo Merchandise make it exactly what you need you're listening to behind the mic with rick hampton we're back on this where have i been return episode of behind the mic with rick hampton and i've been talking to my wife aranda about the last five months we've talked about how i found out i had diabetes made it through a below the knee amputation possible kidney failure having 12 teeth surgically removed open heart surgery to replace my aortic valve and rehab on a prosthetic leg to get used to that as well I can tell you that January 14th of 2019 will forever be a memory to me. That day totally rocked my world. 68 days in the hospital, and I'm still learning. So my question for you is, is what did you learn, and what are some things that you could pass along to somebody who might be in the same situation themselves? When you're in the hospital, you're you're given all of this education and all this information, and you're trying to process everything, and and figure out as these hits are coming. You know, I'm a planner. I got to plan what's happening next. I got to figure out where we're going next. And there really wasn't a lot of that going on because we didn't know what was happening next. We didn't know what the next step was going to be. But once we found out that he was diabetic, then, you know, we had to learn all the diabetes education. We had to figure out what you can and cannot eat, how to control your blood sugars, what's going to affect your blood sugars, um, we found the found out the symptoms of diabetes, you know, things to look out for. So not only with all the diabetic education, then you start getting education about amputees. And you have to figure out how do you live being an amputee? How do you transfer? How do you do things with one leg, basically? And then you get to rehab and then you have all this education about how do you get out of bed? How do you get from the bed to the wheelchair? How do you get from the wheelchair to the toilet? How do you get from the wheelchair to in a bathtub? There's just so many things that you don't think about until you're in that situation. When you're in a wheelchair and you go to the elevator, how do you get on the elevator? How do you go down a ramp in public? How do you how do you deal with public? How do you um, when people are staring at you in public, you know, they want to know what's going on and you get that awkward smile. How do you deal with that? How do you process that emotionally and psychologically? There's so many things that come with it that you you have to figure out. So now my my mindset is I have to think about what we do and where we go. Can a wheelchair fit there? Can you access that with a walker? Can you um, navigate it easily? Is the is the road rocky? Is it a smooth surface? You know, is there a, a tripping hazard? There's just so many things now that you have to think about and you have to think in advance that you just take for granted that, you know, life before 
you have two feet and you can walk and you can do whatever, but now you have some of these other obstacles that you have to figure out your new normal. Yeah. Is there a curb? Oh my gosh. Right. There's a curb. You know, how, how do we get, get the wheelchair you know? up the curb? Right. Yeah. Um, which they do specific training with that in rehab. Yes, they do. But, um, and then once you get out of rehab, you know, then you move to the, the prosthetic field and then you have to learn how to walk with the prosthetic. You have to learn how to balance your weight and to move with the prosthetic and you know then you have to learn you know how to take the wheelchair apart to put it into the vehicle and there's just so many things that come with that Um, you know when you get home I have to make sure that the house is arranged in a certain way to where the wheelchair can get through to each the each of the bedrooms can you get into the bed can you get into the bathroom which Mm -hmm. was an issue that we discovered you know and we figured out that once you have a prosthetic, your toilet has to be so many inches high. Otherwise, you can't get above the toilet. So there's just so many things that you have to think about that I wasn't prepared for that even with all my planning and things that I like to be prepared for, I just couldn't because there was, we we didn't know a lot of this information. Uh, To kind of wrap it up a little bit, what is the one thing, uh, or if there's a few things, you know, that stand out to you during this whole process that might help somebody else that was going through the same situation? My advice is go to the doctor. Oh, yeah, definitely. If, if, if you think there's even a possibility that there's something going on with you, go to the doctor. Don't put it off. Don't have ego or whatever. Just go to the doctor and get it checked out because it may end up like my situation, but out of all of those surgeries, all of the issues that I had, the one thing that I learned about my heart was easing to my mind. That took that fear and that um, anxiety away from me about any time I had any little palpitation. I didn't think that way anymore. And I don't think that way anymore. So go to the doctor. But for you, what would be one of your takeaways if you were wanting to talk to somebody that maybe was going through this situation or that may possibly go through that situation. Well, one thing that kind of stands out is you are the leader of our family. And so there were so many things that you had the information to, things like paying the bills. You had all the passwords. And so there was information like that that maybe I didn't have access to. So I would encourage you to sit down with your spouse, make sure that you have a notebook, make sure that you have things written down, that if something does happen to one of you, that you have that information accessible. That way you can carry on life. And if there's a a pause, you know, for a a period of time, um, that you have all of that important stuff tucked away somewhere or that you sit down and have those hard conversations about creating a living will or an advanced directive or having um, plans in place. We're fairly young and those are things that you don't think about, but Life changes in the blink of an eye and you never know what's going to happen. But I agree with you totally. Like, go to the doctor. We've had so many people tell us, well, my doctor told us I might be borderline diabetic or that I need to make a a doctor's appointment. Well, listen to your doctors. They actually know what they're talking about. And um, I would just encourage you that if you're in the situation to do something about it, to act on it, to make that change because it's worth it, not only for your family, Because it's a scary situation, not having that and that unknown of knowing whether your family member is going to pull through and to be there with them day in and day out and seeing the situation they're in. And, you know, it might be a a case where it's too late. Act fast and act now. And if I would have waited, it would have been too late. Oh, it would have definitely. I mean, you know, I was already septic whenever I went into the hospital. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about that as well with uh, AJ here in just a few minutes. But one thing I would love for you to do, and I would encourage you to do, is if you are out there and you have a story like that, uh, I would love to hear about it. So again, you can either call the hotline or if you'd rather just uh, jot down that information, you can email me at btm for behind the mic, btmrickhampton at gmail.com, btmrickhampton at gmail.com. Coming up here in just a few minutes, we're going to be talking to my sister. She was a former REN, spent uh, a lot of her career, and then towards the end of her career, actually started teaching other RNs to make them RNs and to teach them how to identify things and, and to work with uh, hospital staff. A great conversation just ahead on Behind the Mic with my sister, A.J. Halsey. Don't go anywhere. More of the Behind the Mic podcast is next.
Summer months are upon us, and I'm sure by now you've had your AC on. If you're like me, my AC was struggling to keep up, so I called Troy at Total Comfort Solutions. He inspected and serviced my AC compressor, and now it practically spits ice chips out of the vents. Okay, well, maybe not ice chips, but it is cold, cold air. If your air conditioner isn't working, that ain't cool. Call Troy at 918-629-0615. That's 918-629-0615. Total Comfort Solutions in Sand Springs, 918-629-0615. Commercial over. Now on with the show. You're listening to Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton. Thanks, Candace, and on with the show we go. Joined this time by my sister, AJ, spent a lot of her life dedicated to the health profession as a registered nurse. Now, Miranda and I were talking about where I've been, everything that we've been through, and we were talking during the break about when I came out of the surgery after the amputation, and I didn't want to look under the covers, and you were saying that that's pretty much a normal response. A really normal response for most people. Most people don't want to look. You have to acclimate yourself over hours, days, you know, some people even longer. I would like to talk about the things to be on the lookout for. Well, there's there are several things. And one of the issues, um, I think, in your case and, and, you know, common among all of us is we all just think we're invincible, first mm-hmm. of all. And we're too busy and we've got so much going on. I don't have time to be sick. If there's any any past negative experiences maybe that people have had, it makes them not want to go to the doctor or afraid to go to the doctor or, or whatever. So, uh, but a lot of the, the diabetes warning signs are pretty innocuous. I mean, they're, they're vague and, oh, it's just, I'm tired. Well, mm-hmm. you know, fatigue, that's a common sign of diabetes, but it's a common sign of the lifestyle we live right now mm-hmm. too. Right. So, you know, we kind of push that off like, I'm um, just, you know, there's a lot of stress at work or at home or whatever. Um, excessive thirst is is a really early sign usually frequent urination yes because you're drinking a lot more water but you also (laughs) think though like for me i thought well i'm getting older Mm -hmm. you know i mean i'm not ancient but you know i was 46 at the time but i was thinking well you know i'm getting older and everybody always says after 40 you get up more to go to the bathroom or whatever so we've got fatigue we've got thirst thirst increased thirst even Right, right and then on top of that the frequent urination which comes from the whole thirst thing you're drinking more liquids obviously it's got to go somewhere what else Um, to be on the lookout for you know often like dry itchy skin can be an issue our skin tells a lot a lot about what's going on inside of us we just again we don't listen sometimes increased appetite but unexplained weight loss Mm. sometimes that's not a lot sometimes it is you know um so that one is kind of you know that may or may not really grab your attention slow wound healing Mm. slow resolution of bruising those are some signs that that you can look for Mm -hmm. Um, you know if you have an increased um, yeast problem Mm -hmm. you know like yeast infections yeast feeds off of sugar vision changes yeah revision and I'm not a doctor and I don't pretend to give medical advice but it I think that's one of those things that's kind of a fluctuating thing as well you know if your blood sugar is just sky high you may have more blurry vision that day than you do the day before Mm -hmm. so when it's transient like that, people can kind of just go, oh, well, I don't know, maybe I just have an allergy trouble today or I don't know what, you know, whatever, right. we can push it off and, and deny it. The thing about it is all of these symptoms are pretty vague and you can have the same symptoms with different things. Some may be serious and may not be serious, but if you have all of those symptoms or a majority of those symptoms and, you know, if you notice all these things and especially in your case, Mm-hmm. with a big family history right. on both sides of your family. Right. At that point, you you probably should be going, okay, wait a minute. Yeah, that's a pretty good indicator, all right, that maybe you should go ahead and head to the doctor. Let's talk a little bit about numbers here. When I went into the hospital, my A1C was 14 and my blood sugar level was at a 629. I, when I heard that, I just like nearly dropped my teeth. Not everybody probably knows what a, a A1C is. Uh, When we say A1C, it's hemoglobin A1C, and basically it's a blood test that, um, just to simplify it, it gives you kind of a three-month overview of what your average, average blood sugars have been running. So with your A1C, I forget, what did you say it was? 14. 14. 
basically that's that's like for the last three months your blood sugar average for you know like of course you know blood sugar goes up and it goes mm-hmm. down but your average 24 7 would have been had to be like over 350 right so a normal a1c i just verified my numbers i thought i had them but i didn't want to misspeak normal is going to be anywhere from four to 5.6 anything 5.6 to 6.4 is basically pre-diabetic yeah anything over 6.5 is diabetic mm. again i don't want to overstep my uh my pay grade but um really if you get in that 5.7 to 6.4 you're diabetic yeah at that point require medications you you could control with diet at maybe right at that point but realistically if they tell you you're pre-diabetic your brain needs to go okay i'm diabetic i'm diabetic i need yeah. to start changing some stuff yeah right and with you another thing that anytime you are diabetic and you have an infection mm-hmm or any kind of illness, your blood sugar is always going to be higher. It's going to run higher. So you had so many things going. You just had the perfect storm brewing because you were diabetic. You had this raging infection. You know, the infection was so bad they couldn't close your leg. Right. We did four surgeries pretty much right in a row. I mean, within days. Yeah. Every other day I was in the OR Mm -hmm. uh, being put under again. And they would go in and they would look at it and then they would come back and say, nope, not today. Can't do it again. You know, there's still infection there. Uh, They were fighting it with antibiotics. Right. Because you were septic and because you had such a raging infection, then other body systems were taking a hit. So then we found out that because of the infection in my foot and it had gotten in my bloodstream and it had traveled, which caused me to be septic, which caused the infection to be other places, a part of that infection has attached itself to my heart valve. It was affecting my valve to the point where it would open up and allow the blood to flow back, but it would slowly drift back down. And then they discovered in some of the testing that the antibiotics was also affecting my kidneys. Well, and you've got a double whammy there because right. being diabetic also affects your kidneys. Mm-hmm. And with your A1C being 14, that tells me you've been diabetic for quite a while without right. realizing it. So you're kind of back to your chicken and egg thing. Right. You know, how much of the kidney issues that that you were having were related to the antibiotic that were well, that were harmful to your kidney or... How much of it was damage from diabetes? Yeah, diabetes. And then, you know, if nothing else, it was acerbated with antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So the next step, honestly, was the surgeon that had done the amputation came into my room and he said, look, I've been consulting with the CBT surgeon, cardiovascular surgeon. And so he said, I I think that at this point, I'm going to try to go in and close that wound. I think... Uh, by looking at it, the antibiotics have done their job, and so I think we're good. But if I get in there and I determine that it's better skin, better wound, and everything else above your knee, would you be okay with me just taking your knee and everything and and then closing it up? And at that point, I mean, it just felt like the hits just kept on a coming, and I finally just like looked it. at him and I said, no, I want to keep my knee. And I said, and I believe that God will turn that around. I think today's the day. Well, and I will tell you, being on the other side of it, I mean, you're just watching you during your journey has been very interesting to me because for, you know, like 26 years, I was an ICU nurse. Mm-hmm. And so I know that side of it real well, but I hadn't often been on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I felt like I was in a, a good position in that I could kind of help translate <laughs> that right. foreign language that the, you know, medical speak, but it was really interesting to be on the other side of it. But I will have to say in my experience, first of all, it's, it's clear, um, that God's hand was over this whole journey. Right. I mean, doors opened and doors closed in just the right Uh, way and um, just the way you have come through this has been amazing but for sure God handpicked that surgeon Mm -hmm. because majority of the people 
would have went above the knee as soon as they saw how infected it was. They mm-hmm. left it open because the infection was even higher than where they, right. where they cut. Majority of them would have said, oh, this is too bad. We're going to have to go above the knee. And they would have just come out and said, sorry, we couldn't do below the knee. We had to go above. Yeah. Okay, he didn't. And then he didn't. And then he didn't. And he didn't. Even if one had not done it the first surgery, by the second or third I don't know yeah. anybody that wouldn't have. So literally, yeah. God handpicked that surgeon. And his reaction was, I, I thought it was interesting because he was asking me that right before we were going into surgery. <laughs> right. And, you know, so I just told him, I was like, no, I won't be okay with that. And he just looked me right in the eye and he goes, good, let's go get it done. That was the day. I was on the road to recovery. Mm-hmm. What most people would be doing almost immediately after the amputation, that took weeks for me. We were in a battle. I think it's interesting that you, you used the, that you were in a battle. And, and certainly you, Miranda, and Cheyenne were in this, the eye of the storm. Mm-hmm. But I think all of us that, that came alongside you, now I'm going to start crying. Mm-hmm. All of us that came alongside you, I think we felt like we were in the battle. Yeah. We felt like right. we were locking arms and putting a hedge around you. I mm-hmm. mean, that's just how it felt. I've never experienced that before to that extent, but you've really felt like I'm a crucial part of this fight. Right. And it's it's almost like like we were willing strength to you. And I feel that way too, that the prayers and the strength is what got me through the rest of my road to recovery. I spent several weeks in rehab and finally the week came when they released me to go home. But earlier in the week, like the week before, because I'd lost so much weight, I was wearing 2X shorts, but I had to cinch them up really tight. So I had done that. I stood up to do a transfer and we were working on car transfers. So he had the the little bed, raised up bed higher so it could kind of simulate getting from my wheelchair up into a car. We were there and Marcus says, okay, go ahead. You know, do the transfer. Show me you can do it. Well, I stood up and the only other person in the gym was a, a woman about 70 years old or so and her therapist facing me. When I stood up, my shorts fell to my ankles. <laughs> Fortunately, no commando for me. <laughs> I was covered. She got to see me in my boxers. So fast forward to that Friday, we're leaving in the afternoon, and I am so ready. We get out there, and there's probably about 25, 30 people just in that immediate area, plus all the ones that were in the lobby of the main entrance of St. Francis. We pull the car up. Marcus leans down in my ear and says, hey, I'm going to help you transfer into the car, but just so we don't have a repeat of last week's little incident, indecent exposure or whatever, are you cinched up? And I said, yep good to go. I said, I am ready to go. Okay, great. We stand up for the first time. The problem was the front was cinched up great, but the back was at the top of my rear end. Again, shorts fall directly to the floor. Uh, On the ground, my pants were on the ground and showing my boxers for everybody to see. I don't know, probably 50 something people or more walking in and out of there. They immediately turn and surround me. So Miranda and Marcus both kind of surround me so that nobody else can see. And they were like, well, what do you want us to do? So well, I guess just pull my pants back up. I don't know. You know, I pull my pants back up and we'll go from there. The problem was, is that they did it so quickly that they actually put both my, not only my left leg, but my right stump leg in the same <laughs> shorts hole, in the same leg hole. So there I am like one legged standing there you know got them both pinned together so marcus looks at me and he goes oh man he goes well what do you want to do he said you want me to just put you in the car i mean at this point i can even pick you up and put you in the car if you want i'm like well what is that going to do me any good i you know i got to get out eventually at home and you know what that means i'm like i know just pull my pants back down and put them back up. And so they did. And so, Somewhere of course. in Tulsa right now. Somebody right. else is telling this story. <laughs> right. Yeah, there is. You'll not believe what happened at the main entrance whenever I went to visit so-and-so in the hospital today. Right. Instead of a mic drop, I did a shorts drop. Right. Peace out. It's been so great being home and, and being, you know, Miranda's taken such great care of me and to learn how to walk again. Hanger Clinic is the people I see for prosthetics and it has been fantastic. So I have the leg, I'm able to get around um, and it's a process just like everything else, but I'm excited about that as well. So I've been using it a lot lately. We've worked on the ramp today and stuff like that. So um, if you see me out and about, know that I'll I'll either be in my wheelchair buzzing around, you know, because I've really gotten good at that 
or I'll be actually walking on that uh, leg. And more likely, you'll see me with the leg on more than and that. So big question. Yeah. How is the diabetes? Diabetes is great. There's only been one or two days, and that was in the beginning, that I had a little high blood sugar for the day. You know, the range is 80 to 180 or thereabouts. And I one day was like 187, and then another was 182. But for the most part, um, ever since then, I've been watching what I eat. Portion control has helped. Uh, that's one of the biggies. And then also, um, just I have to monitor my sugar. I do take insulin, uh, but I only take it once a day. Originally, they were going to do it twice a day, but they had me on a pill. So I take that in the morning, and then I do give myself a shot. It's going great. For me, it's a new lifestyle, and it's a new way to live. But at the same time, it's been an awesome thing because I've learned a lot and I can keep my eyes wide open now. And I don't have a problem with if I need to see a doctor, I'll make the appointment. Don't ignore your body. Your body will tell you when something's wrong. And if you think that it's something's wrong, go to the doctor. Don't put it off. Just make the appointment and go get checked out. Let me say one thing real go quick. Ahead. Just um, this, this whole story, uh, the biggest takeaway is don't let those little nagging things that you know if you pause and think mm, that hurts right there I don't I, I haven't been doing anything or something just out of the ordinary like you said your body will talk to you mm -hmm. you just have to listen so don't be afraid that it's something bad and you don't want to find out and don't be afraid that oh I don't want to go to my doctor because they're gonna just think I'm silly and mm -hmm. you know I'm gonna feel stupid don't let that stop you yeah I can speak from the medical community. We would much rather you come and it be nothing mm -hmm. than you come and it be this cascade of... Yeah, serious issues like serious, I had. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, and by putting it off, that's right. You know, it puts you in a you know, bad situation. So here's the thing. It's the behind the mic speed round. It's oh. very simple. What we're going to do is we're going to put 60 seconds on the clock. Mm -hmm. I'll ask you just a quick series of questions. You give me your quickest answer. I'm nervous now. <laughs> and the cool thing is, is that you're actually playing for somebody because a lucky listener of behind the mic will actually win a $20 gift card to Mojo Merchandise, our major sponsor. Behind the mic, speed round. Speed round. In the hot seat right now is AJ Halsey, my special guest and my sister. She is, it's been fun hanging out and talking with her. So we are going to play Behind the Mic, speed round. As I said before, we're going to put 60 seconds on the clock. And the time begins after I ask the first question. You ready? Yes. All right, here we go. Your favorite candy. Almond Joy. Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter? Facebook. Biggest phobia? Heights. Is Bigfoot real? Um, no. If you owned a CB radio, what would your handle be? Oh, wow. Back in the day when our dad had one, it was the Bubblegum Kid. The Bubblegum Kid. Nice. I remember that. You're right. I do remember that. What's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Escargot. First celebrity crush? Patrick Swayze. Now, is it the Dirty Dancing Patrick Swayze oh, yeah. or the Roadhouse? No, Dirty Dancing. Nobody puts baby in a corner. That's right. How, okay. Just call me baby. Right. <laughs> that might be a little creepy, but okay. Climb a mountain or jump from a plane? Oh, jump from a plane. Okay. How long can you hold your breath for? Oh, I used to a long time ago. I would say maybe 45 seconds. How many marshmallows can you fit in your mouth and still say chubby bunny? 32. Nice. Great. All right. Would you rather wake up to an air horn blowing in your ear every day or wake up and have to run four miles every day? Oh, I'll take the running four miles. All right. Yeah. See, that was easy. You did it. It was perfect. You got all of them right. And I want to thank Jennifer Castleberry from Cleveland for playing along. That's who you were playing for today. Uh, she wins a $20 gift card to Mojo Merchandise, our title sponsor. Sponsor. If you are looking for tumblers, t-shirts, home decor, you will find it at Mojo Merchandise. You can find them on Facebook at Mojo Merchandise. Or if you'd like to go to mojomerchdesigns.net, it's where they're at on the web. It has been a blast hanging out with you today. So and I'm worried your, where your listeners are judging me now for knowing exactly how many marshmallows. <laughs> Not at all, because I'm, I'm at 31 or 32 myself so yeah no it's i don't know there may be some silent judging going on but the good thing is is that my listeners will not voice that probably very much so 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, That's going to do it for this episode. If you like what you hear, I would love for you to go on my Facebook page, Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton. Leave me a comment. Also, if you want to play along and be a part of the lucky listenership that could win that gift card, all you have to do is email me at btmrickhampton at gmail.com. It's btmrickhampton at gmail.com. And you don't want to miss coming up a couple more episodes. On the way is the host of Totally Awesome 80s, the syndicated show. He's also on Totally Awesome 80s 100.9 in Tulsa. He also is on the radio in the mornings in Oklahoma City. You don't want to miss that we're going to go back to the future with Kent Jones, the host of that show. That's coming up with episode number nine. And then we also have a special uh, episode 10 coming up where Cher Kamiko and I sat down together and talked about the reason why I originally did all of this with Behind the Mic. You don't want to miss that one either. It's all coming up. And so many more guests I've got uh, planned for you. You don't want to miss any of it. It's going to be a great time. But until next time, thanks for listening to Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton. Until then, bye, everybody. This episode of Behind the Mic podcast was brought to you by Mojo Merchandise. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Join us next time as we go behind the mic with Rick Hampton.